0: when Annie was born, our daughter, she had downs. We knew that coming into this, they figured that one out. And I think pretty early, somewhere around week 2021. 20, and when that happened, we started getting all kinds of advice from people. I mean, how to cure downs, how to change the trisomy 21 and, you know, uh, and everything else, um, people met well, it just got a little overwhelming. Maybe you've been in that kind of situation where you're like, okay, uh, I'm through with the, uh, you know, potions, Uh, but one of the things that came to us, it kind of made sense because Downs particular, almost all Downs kids have a lower muscle tone. And so therefore the development of the tongue, and the capacity to speak is usually delayed and also genetically because of the capacity of the mind. And so one of the things they said to prevent something that they often see, which is a lot of anger and frustration in Downs kids because they can't communicate to you is to use sign language. So we kind of mustered up, you know, I mean, a raging vocabulary of probably 75 words. And and one time I remember she was just toddling around the house and we were going somewhere. And so I said, Annie, go put your shoes on. And uh, she ran upstairs and I was kind of like, whoa, that worked. She understood me. And, and you said, well, of course she did. You know, you're communicating. But let me tell you what, when you're, you're trying to figure out, I mean, and, and my sign language was pretty pathetic. And so uh, I could have said, go put your shoes on or, you know, go take the garbage out. I can't tell you which one I'm telling you. When she understood that, it dawned on me. I do understand why people could get infinitely frustrated When they have something inside of them that they want to communicate, but they can't. There's a barrier for whatever reason. It might be similar for those of you who have traveled to another country. You land there, you see things, people kind of look the same as they do. Maybe a little different color skin or their facial characteristics are different. But the fact is they're humans and here's this huge barrier. You don't know their language and they don't know yours. And so you have all of these things you want to communicate. All these things, for those of us who are just in Peru, you want to communicate these things to these kids. And you can translate, and and that's helpful, or you can have uh, one of five versions of I translate like I do on my phone, but it never works quite as fast as it should. And the inability to communicate to another person is maybe one of the most frustrating situations to ever find yourself in. Because when you can't communicate, it's hard to have a relationship. You can hug them, you can love them, slap high five, yes, and then you find out what you just did in another language is offensive. And so then you just start doing this all the time. It's like, (laughs) what's a smile mean in your country? And you're just like paranoid that you're gonna do something offensive. Why? It's just very, very basic. You don't know how to communicate. In a strange way, if you will, I find it strange, God had the same problem. God is holy. He's spirit. He's eternally been spirit for time and eternity. And yet he created humans who had flesh, who had limitations, geographic limitations, spatial limitations, physical limitations, mental limitations. And God, who is infinite, all-knowing, and all-powerful, had a challenge. How does he communicate his affection and his love and his commitment to a group of people who have no capacity, no real capacity to understand a personal spirit? I understand flesh and blood. I understand kids and grandpas. I understand horses and cows. And, but, but spirit, relationship, affection, it's like fall in love with the air. It's hard for me to do. And because of that, God made a choice. And John wants to tell us about that. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. Well, for what reason, God? Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side. He made God known. Have you ever wrestled with the question of, God, why did you have to come in the flesh? Jesus, why did you have to take on bodily form? Why did you have to become incarnate? Why couldn't Jesus declare from heaven, thou shalt be saved? You saved the cross, so it would have saved a whole lot of problems. and There was a lot of things you could have done w- without that. And yet John, this person who was, I would suggest, probably the best friend of Jesus on earth. Why do I say that? Well, man, if if, if I'm dying and I want somebody to take care of my wife or if I want somebody to take care of my mother, the person I choose is probably the person I would actually trust the most. And Jesus looked to John and asked him, see to my mom. John loved Christ. And he begins this gospel with answering a really, really important question, and that is, Why did God take on skin? Why did the infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful God, who in eternity past has always been a spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, why this dramatic modal change that would take Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, and change his If you will, composition, not his essence, but his mode forever. John wants you to know that question because it's critical for you. First of all, God takes on skins, simply the text says, so that we can know him. God doesn't want to be a mystery to you. He doesn't want to be elusive. He doesn't play hard to get. He he hates the game hide and seek. That's not God's passion. It's not that God is fully understandable to us. The scripture says in Isaiah that God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And it's not that we're ever going to be comparable to God. But God also doesn't want you to wonder, what do you like? What do you like? And most importantly, do you like me? The text tells us that God took on flesh. The word became flesh for one profound reason, so that we might know God. John uses a word, nobody else does. It's not a word that is uncommon, it's just no one used it to describe Jesus. And in the very beginning, he says, in the beginning was the word, capital W, the term is logos. John knew that he had two fundamental audiences who would read that word very differently. The Greeks heard that word and their interpretation of that word was uniquely and distinctly different than Jewish people. And so John, in this text, wants to make sure both get their answer. What is this word? What's he like? What's it do? For the Greek, the term logos would be a force, a principle that holds all things together. It's logical, it's rational, it's a principle, and it's governed by the World, it's, it's bigger than the world. And, and John agrees with that. And that's the reason why he says in verse three, through him, all things were made. What is he dealing with? He's not dealing with a personal God at that point. He'll deal with that later. But he's talking about this God, this word who did what? Created everything. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. You need not go anywhere else. To disprove evolution with that text. Evolution says that we are the product of time, chance, and energy. This text says, We, everything that you see, is the product of a decisive, decision making, designing, powerful God who created. So we're not living in a world that's accidental. We are not mutations of something that has evolved over time we are the direct product of a god who designed you who thought you up who gave you a heart and a body and and an eye and a brain just the way he wanted to design it you're not an accident the text tells you the logos created you the Logos created not just the physical world, but he goes on and he says, and in him was what? Life. And that life was the light of men. Not only did Christ create the physical world that you and I live in, but he created the spiritual world, the conscious world, the, the, the conscious in your mind, the soul. That which, if you will, exists within your permanent body right now, but will exist for a moment outside of that when you die and your soul continues. And later you will get a glorified body. So this soul is this life that he speaks of and Christ created not just the physical world that you and I operate in, not the physical world that we see and smell, but also the spiritual world, which is your identity and your personhood in your heart. Christ holds this together. I love the way Colossians puts it. He is before all things. He holds all things together. The reason you got up this morning and you walked across the the living room or you walked across your bedroom and you didn't fly off to the universe uh, and, and float around Mars is not because gravity works. It's because Christ Orchestrates and runs and holds the world in his hands. The reason why this world is not random. And that the sun rises every day and sets every night. The reason why the ocean stops where it does is not because it's an accident and it's not a random outcome. It's because God put boundaries. He gave scientific laws and he put them into place. And the scripture says Christ holds that. He literally puts the boundaries around this world that you and I live in. So you can go out every night and it's not a random world that you live and you go out in the Big Dippers in the same place as it was last night and tomorrow night it's gonna be in the same place and you'll be able to see it if there's no clouds. And tomorrow morning with as predictability as you can imagine, the sun's gonna rise. And one of these days soon, much to the tragedy and the not well-being of our souls, the rain's gonna come and it's gonna start and it won't finish. For at least four or five months. But it will fill the rivers. And you who are fishermen will fish to the glory of Jesus. And that cycle will go over and over again. Why? Because there's a force that holds all things together. But the Logos is not just for the Greek, it's also for the Jew. And this Jewish person would look at this word and not see a force, but rather a relationship, a communication, an expression. That's what John gets to down here in verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen this God. And that makes him actually, to be honest with you, hard for you and I to relate to. It's, it's hard to think of an impersonal, if you will, or, or a force that, that doesn't have a face and doesn't have eyes. It's tough for us to think about that, God, and think, I love you. Uh, again, that would be like going out to the, to the air or to the wind and saying to the wind, I love you. I, I, I see the effects of you. And he understands that challenge. No one has ever seen God. And that is a great challenge for you and me. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side. God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side. Don't miss that text. Jesus, who was with God and was God. God, the one and only, who is where? At the Father's side has made him known. Let me take it a step further. It's made him relatable. I can understand God because I've seen Jesus. I can imagine a personal relationship with God because I've seen uh, the life of Christ. I've imagined him. Uh, No, I didn't live there, but, but the fact is, is people did and they touched him. And God did that so that you and I would be able to relate to him. And that we would know that he is powerful, but he's relatable. He's unique and above all creation, and yet he wants a relationship with his creation. God takes on skin so that you and I might know him. But here's a flip side of that. God also takes on skin so that he might know you. Sounds heretical, but let me build this case for a moment. Prior to the incarnation, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who was God, always existed in what mode, in what form? A spirit. The one who created the universe decided to enter into time and space. The one who designed the body received a body. The one who understands the complexity of the eye received eyes, just like you did. And when he was born, he was just like you. He saw black and white. And then in a period of time, he saw the world in color. The one who had capacity to be everywhere at any given time was located in a manger in a small body that couldn't walk and couldn't speak. What a dramatic journey. Why would God do that? The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. We do not have a high priest who, who does not know what it means to face temptation. We do not have a high priest who is unable to Feel what it's like to be lied about, to be betrayed, to be abandoned, to be exhausted, to have physical limitations. We, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Rather, we have a high priest who knows what it's like to carry a cross, literally the weight of the cross, and feel it crushing over his shoulder. He knows what it's like to carry the, the emotions and the pain of a whole score of people. He knows what it's like to grieve at the loss of a friend. He knows what it's like to have a group of people with these massive expectations And to live in space and time, he knows what that's like. Why is that important? God says it is. Because you're never going to approach a God who you believe in your heart has no idea what it's like to be you. Of course we want our God to be who he is, the one who is the creator of the universe. But he also believes he says it, that it's important for you to understand he's approachable. We have a God who understands what it's like to, to suffer. And so when we need mercy and grace in our time of need, the scripture says, we are freely going to come to him. Why? Because he knows what it's like to hurt just like you. We, we do this all the time. We do. If you've got a kid that's rebelling, You more than likely are not going to go to a family whose children are all perfect. If you've got a son or a daughter who's transgendering, I I think you're going to look for somebody who understands the journey that you're walking, who understands what it's like to hurt the way you're hurting. If you're married and your marriage is on the rocks, you, you might go to a counselor, but, but you're probably also inclined to find a friend who has had some struggles. Because if you find a person and say, hey, have, have you ever, you know, had a fight with your wife? No, no, no. My wife and I are, well, to be quite honest with you, we've never had a day of disagreement. Oh, great. What's it like to be married to a woman who's Perfect. And if you've ever struggled to understand your spouse, husband to wife, wife to, to a husband, you're not going to go to a person who has no clue what you're talking about. You want somebody who understands, somebody who's walked a mile, if you will, in your shoes. God understands that. That's not foreign to God. That's why he said. Your God understands what it means to be tempted. Your God understands what it means to be tried. Your God understands what it means to be crucified. Your God understands what it means to carry the weight of the world and the sins of the world. Your God understands that. Why is that important? Because when you pray, you're not praying to a spirit that you can't relate to. You're praying to a God who took on flesh. The scripture says that Jesus grew in wisdom. Have you ever thought that maybe part of the wisdom that he grew in is his understanding of you? Jesus knows what it's like to be you. And when you cry out to him and you pray, and when you pour out your heart to him, it's nice to know that he doesn't look at you and says to you, I haven't a clue what you're facing. It's nice to know that your God knows you. We all want people like that in our life. We do. We all want people who have carried the weight that we've carried to some degree. That ability makes them approachable. And oftentimes... I would suggest, makes your heart available to them. That's why God took on flesh. Finally, God took on skin so that we might become his children. That's the ultimate end of this text. Verse 12, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Again, I love the kindness of God to use language that you and I understand. We understand what it's like to be adopted. Maybe you weren't adopted, but you know what it's like. And for those of you who have adopted children, you know that you don't look at those kids, even though maybe you didn't give birth to them. You don't look at them as second-class citizens. They're not stepchildren to you. They're yours. And when they became yours, you brought them into your home and you gave them the rights and the privileges that you have given to any of your children. My children, over the years, have always had special rights that no one else has. I bet yours do too. If I'm in a meeting with somebody and one of my kids needs me, to be quite candid with you, don't be offended. I don't care who you are. You're not as important as my kids. My wife needs me. Sorry, she just is ahead of you. Why? Because she's my wife. And those are my kids. And I bet you're the same. I bet if you're at work and it doesn't matter, you're closing a deal, you're selling something, or man, you're, you're you know, signing something that's really critical. And if somebody says your son needs you, you don't think for a minute. It can Tell him it, it'll wait till, no, no, it's an emergency. Just, I don't care if it's an emergency. What I'm doing is really important. Tell him I'll call him tonight. Quite candidly, if you do that, you should probably be fired as a father. Our children become something to us. Why? Because they're an expression of us. They're attached to us. They, they have life from us. And when the text says, yet to all who receive him, to those who receive this God who came in the flesh and receive his death, his resurrection, his gift, his salvation. To those who receive that, God says, I bring you into my family. I give you all the rights and the privileges of all of my children. I will be available to you. I will protect you. I will incline my ear to you. I will sing over you. I have plans for you, just like he promised Jeremiah. I know the plans I have for you. The plans that he has for us are different than the nation of Israel, different than the prophet Jeremiah. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't have plans for you. God does. And he has a passion for you. And his passion is given to us in Romans chapter 8. He says, before the foundation of the world, he has what predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. He's adopted you. And when he adopted you, he adopted you not just to be his child, but to become like the father. He had an intention. John's writing this. Best friend of Jesus, I would suggest. John had a brother. His name was James. They called him the sons of Zebedee. They also had another name. Do you remember that one? The sons of thunder. Now, it may sound kind of cool, but it really wasn't. You know what the sons of thunder were? Hot headed. They acted before they thought. When they came through a house, they found glass and usually broke it. When they went to a wedding... When everyone else was gathered together for the pictures, they were off trying the food. When somebody was praying, the sons of thunder, those little rascals were always running around. And they could absolutely unsettle any sacred moment. They were sons of thunder. Hot-headed little rascals. And then John met Jesus. Oh my how it changed his life. How he became a different person. This hot-headed individual now became one who found himself very comfortable laying on the chest of his friend Jesus. This one whom at one point could upend a party like no one else became a, a man that Jesus would look down when he was contemplating his own death and said, take care of my mom. You see, when God adopted you, he had a vision for your life. And like any child, the more you hang around your father, the more you look like him. For those of you dads who have sons it's a magical thing that God makes your sons sound just like you on the phone. It really is. It's the coolest thing in the world. I would take it a step further. Watch a dad walk and then watch his son walk. And 90% of the time they walk the same way, even if it's funny. <laughs> kind of bull-legged or something like that weird. It's like they just take it on. They don't even need a horse to do that. They they just take it on. Why? Because the more time you spend with your father, the more you look like him. I I knew of a gentleman who was um, late in life when he came to Christ. He was 72. He was just not a good person. He was unfaithful. He, He saw women as objects. He had a steady diet of porn in his life and he, Topped it off with alcohol and get drunkenness virtually every night. He was vile. You didn't want to be around him. No one did. He was mean. The children that he raised, I talked to every one of them. Every one of them had gone through a door, not walked through it, thrown through it. They hated him. 72 years of age, I was with him when he bowed and asked Jesus to be his Savior. And he gave his life to Christ. More importantly, Christ gave his life to him. Porn went out the door. Alcohol thrown down the drain. His language began to change. And the way he viewed people, in particular women, began to align with the Father's heart. They say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Maybe you and I can't, but Jesus can. And it doesn't matter what age you come to him, it really doesn't. Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. But look at the verse prior to verse 12. Verse 11 says, he came to that which was his own, the Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. I think it's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. The very people that God had chosen the very people that God had orchestrated over the years, the very people that God had preserved and cared for when he sent his son in the flesh so that they might know him and so that they might receive him and so that they might become like him. The tragedy, one of the saddest verses in the Bible. They missed him. And I want to suggest this morning, there's probably some of you in this room that have missed him. Maybe you're too much of a man to trust Jesus. Maybe you're too independent of a woman to ever really trust Jesus. I have an invitation for you. It's right here in verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name. What does that mean? Believed that Christ was God. Believed that he Died on the cross for your sins, believe that he wants to adopt you as his child. He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or husband's will, born of God. John says there's a reason Jesus came in the flesh. Because God wanted you to know who he was. And amazingly, God wanted to know you. So that he could do what? Make you his child. And if you were to do that this morning and receive him, he will change you from the inside. He'll change your appetites. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness. He'll change those appetites in your heart. And it doesn't matter if you're 72 or if you're seven. If you'll receive Christ this morning, this one who came in the flesh for you, God will become your father. You will become his daughter or his son. And you get all the rights and the privileges of calling God your father and Jesus your friend.